My name is Dick Scruggs. I live in Oxford, Mississippi, and I uh, am a former lawyer and uh, uh, former inmate. Dick Scruggs is being modest. He is a legendary lawyer. He made a fortune in the 1980s and 1990s fighting asbestos companies on behalf of workers who were sick in his hometown on Mississippi's Gulf Coast, and then made a much bigger fortune and a huge name for himself as the guy who beat Big Tobacco. He shows up as a character in a movie from 1999 called The Insider. Here's a clip from the film. The governor of Mississippi is suing his own attorney general to abandon litigation against Big Tobacco. Yeah, Big Tobacco was, you know, big. And he's the guy who beat them. Later, and this is the former inmate part, he took an enormous fall. And this story takes place in between that huge triumph and that huge fall when he took on nonprofit hospitals. In a set of lawsuits filed around the country, Scruggs and his colleagues accused hospitals of acting like rapacious businesses instead of like tax-exempt charities, gouging patients on price and chasing them for enormous charges they couldn't afford to pay, sometimes suing them instead of offering them, you know, charity. If you've been listening to this show or, you know, just seeing the news now and again, you may be thinking, those practices haven't totally gone away. And for the most part, those lawsuits failed. But they did have an influence. It's going to take us a couple of episodes at least to trace it. And it's a totally wild ride and kind of a lesson in how change happens. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about the cost of healthcare. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter, and I like a challenge. So my job on this show is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you a show that is entertaining, empowering, and useful. And this story does not begin with a legendary attorney. It begins with two guys who wanted to expand their medical practice in the city of Albany, Georgia. Population, 70-some thousand. They ended up in a beef with the local hospital, which was also one of the town's biggest employers. Here's one of those guys, Charles Rayburg, the practice manager, from a documentary called Do No Harm. We set out on a goal to open a surgery center, and we hit obstacles with the state. Yeah, this is a medical office for surgeons who are doing all their actual surgery at the local hospital. They wanted to do some minor surgery on their own site. It seemed like a nice business to get into. But state regs didn't allow standalone surgery centers, so these guys sued the state. And you know who butted into that lawsuit against our two guys? The state's Association for Nonprofit Hospitals. They actually joined the suit as a defendant. The Alliance of Community Hospitals intervened on the premise that they would be financially harmed. That's Dr. John Bagnato, the other of our two guys. All the tape we have of these two guys is from the documentary. The hospitals were saying that if the state allowed standalone surgery centers, it would hurt nonprofit hospitals financially. And, geez, you're going to take money away from a bunch of do-good nonprofits? Gosh, that would hurt our ability to serve the community. Our guys did not take that claim at face value. They took it as bait. Because they made that claim in court, we began to investigate the hospital's financial positions. They started with the local hospital, Phoebe Putney, the place where John Bagnato actually did his surgeries. Charles Rayburg pulled Phoebe Putney's tax returns from the Internet. Guy after my own heart. And Phoebe Putney did not exactly look like it was hurting for money. 
Here he is in the documentary. Phoebe was spending um, about $2 million a year on travel for the executive and board members. That included things like board retreats at the Ritz-Carlton and Amelia Island. Oh, yeah. In the documentary, Bagnato says the hospital chartered 1990s super lawyer Johnny Cochran's private jet for trips to the Caymans. The CEO earned more than 700000 which in Albany, Georgia, was an unreal amount of money. And of course, they were charging sky-high prices to uninsured patients, most of them poor, and then turning around and suing those folks when they couldn't pay. And meanwhile, they were sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and investments. And around this time, researchers and activists and journalists were reporting that nonprofit hospitals all over the country were acting the same way. Rayberg and Bagnato soaked it up. Rayberg pulled tax returns for 34 other nonprofit hospitals in the state. We've discovered that 34 hospitals were holding $2.6 billion in cash. Now, I'm not saying in assets. I'm talking about in cash. I was working late one night, and about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and that $2.6 billion kept going around in my head. He looked up how many nonprofit hospitals there were in the country. Thousands. He did some quick math. If the rest of the country was like Georgia, they'd have $2.8 trillion in cash. He called Rayburg, woke him up in the middle of the night. I said, Charles, you're not going to believe this. They got $2.8 trillion. And that's what really started it. We started looking like two crazy men. Here's what Rayburg did next. He took 10 of the juiciest bits, the millions in offshore assets, the $28 million in profit from the past year, a huge interest-free loan to the CEO, and... Just really kind of on a lark. And I typed it up in a document that I, I just called it Phoebe Factoids which he and Bagnato sent anonymously all over town. By fax. Remember, it's 2003. They went out to local businesses. We sent them to insurance agents, lawyers, uh, just pretty much anybody who had a fax machine and that we could get the number. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. But what did it get them? It didn't get them a surgical center. They were back-channeling with state officials, which wasn't getting them anywhere. And everyone had an interest in what was going on and, and thought that there were things that needed to be looked into, but no one seemed to have jurisdiction over it. And honestly, it's not clear to me at this point from watching that documentary, was the surgery center even the whole point by now? Were they just pissed? Or did they even really know? But Rayberg says they started thinking, what could shake things up? Maybe a big lawsuit. Maybe bigger than Albany, bigger than Georgia. And if you were going to get a trial lawyer, uh, who would you want? You'd want Dickie Scruggs, the guy who took down the tobacco companies. Oh, oh, yes, you would. After his victory with Big Tobacco, Scruggs had thought he would retire for a minute. And then he started looking around for other battles to fight. And he took Charles Rayberg's call. And the more I talked to Rayberg about it, we started looking into it different systems and realized that, that these practices were common among the nonprofits. And it, it really uh, sort of stuck in my crawl and, and those of other lawyers that I had worked with on other cases. So he was like, let's do something about it. And so we put together kind of a national network of law firms to go after the bigger systems. They ended up filing class action lawsuits against hospitals all over the country in June 2004, including Phoebe Putney in Albany, Georgia. It made the news. Just in the past three weeks, we have learned of 19 lawsuits in 12 states that have been filed accusing hospitals of overcharging uninsured patients and then harassing them for payment. 
Some of these hospitals really play hardball. Later that summer, Charles Rayburg found out just how hard. He's leaving work one night around 7.30, and a Jeep Cherokee suddenly pulls behind his truck and blocks him in. These two guys, they jump out and they're calling my name. Charles Rayburg. Charles Rayburg. You Charles Rayburg. We're uh, ex-FBI agents. We were retained by Phoebe, and we've been investigating you. Whoa. They say they've been getting information from the DA that he'd been sending anonymous faxes. And he better get in their truck right now to go have some meeting or else he's going to get hit with a great big lawsuit. And then one of them says something really chilling. Mr. Rayburg said, if you're not smart enough to do this for yourself, you should think about your wife, Wanda, and your lovely family. He didn't get in that truck, but holy crap. Dick Scruggs sent a bodyguard to watch over him. His family and Bagnados were both fully freaked out. And meanwhile, the cases against nonprofit hospitals were starting to make their way through the courts. Except most of them didn't go very far. Not because they didn't have compelling stories. A guy in Oklahoma who worked at a car repair shop went to a local hospital for a back injury. They gave him a once-over and told him to go see a specialist somewhere else. Then they charged him 3500 bucks for what sounds basically like a referral visit and started hounding him with collection letters and calls. A forklift operator in Chicago took his two-year-old son to the local ER. They treated the kid's fever, sent them home two hours later, and then sent a bill for 1600 bucks. And when Dad asked to make monthly payments, the hospital sued him instead for the full amount. Eventually, after he had paid more than half the bill, they got a judge's okay to garnish his pay and raid his bank account. In Albany, Georgia, Phoebe Putney garnished the wages of a single mom who was making six bucks an hour. That kind of stuff. The problem was with the legal basis for the lawsuits. Like, okay, this behavior wasn't nice, but what legal right was the hospital infringing on here? That's in just a minute. This episode of An Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with the big healthcare outfit, Kaiser Permanente. We'll have some more information about Kaiser Health News at the end of this episode. So, judges were not buying the arguments Scruggs and his team were making about the actual legal basis for these lawsuits. One of their arguments was really complicated. They said the hospital's tax exemption is worth a lot of money. It's like a payment from the government. What's the government paying for? Charity care. And the patients had a right to sue as what Scruggs' team called a third-party beneficiary. Here's an explanation of that. If you contract with Smith to paint Jones's house, Jones is the beneficiary of that contract. Why you want his house painted, I don't know. But if you did, he could actually enforce the contract on your behalf. That's Chris Robertson. These days, he's a law professor at Boston University. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you may recognize him as someone who knows very useful stuff that he's shared with us about our legal rights when we get a wild medical bill. When these cases were filed... He was getting ready for his first year of law school at Harvard, where his contract law professor, her name's Elizabeth Warren. She's got this other job now in the U.S. Senate. 
Back then, she was getting known for research into bankruptcy. You hear even now about how a huge portion of bankruptcies involve medical debt. That's the scholarship she was doing at the time. So she and Dick Scruggs had been talking. And so Chris Robertson shows up at law school and Elizabeth Warren starts talking about these hospital lawsuits. And that's one of the beautiful things about first year of law school is you get these raw materials like the concept of a contract and the concept of a third party beneficiary. And then you go and test them in places like the IRS and say, well, is that a contract? Is that who's the beneficiary? He liked that a lot. And health policy was one of the interests that had brought him to law school in the first place. When I asked her, you know, 10 questions about it, she said, you know, you should really go talk to these lawyers who are, who are actually litigating these cases. And I said, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> With Elizabeth Warren's help, Chris gets a summer job on the Scruggs team. And by the time he shows up, summer 2005, things are not going so great. This third party beneficiary stuff. The idea that tax-exempt hospitals have some kind of contract with the IRS to do charity care? Judges were not buying it. These days, with his first year of law school many years in the past, Robertson doesn't blame them for rejecting the idea. That's just wrong on so many levels. The IRS code is not a contract. So that was the sort of hand-waving, aspirational theory that, that didn't have any legs. The Scruggs team had another approach that he likes better to this day saying that the patient and the hospital do have a contract. The hospital gives medical care, the patient pays a price, and even if the price isn't specified, the hospital can't charge just absolutely anything. Under basic contract law, core contract law, that's called an open price contract, and it has to be a reasonable price charged. And not only were these prices high, they were often many times higher than what the hospital charged insurance companies for the very same services, which doesn't seem reasonable. I've thought then, I think now, that that approach, you know, has some teeth to it. Except judges didn't buy that either. Not as the basis of a class action. Chris Robertson has had time to think about why. Something we teach in law school to all our students is that if you want a judge to do something for you, you have to make it easy for the judge to do it for you. And so if you say that judge this price isn't reasonable, his next or her next question is, okay, what would a reasonable price would be? And at that point, heads start exploding to figure out, well, what is the right price to charge for this particular surgery? And not just the surgery, but it turns out that's 50 lines of charges, right? There's a price for the bandage and a price for the anesthetics, both the service and the, the actual product. And so it turns into almost like a fractal problem. The closer you look, the more complicated it gets. And that is really not making it easier for the judge, especially if you want the judge to consider a whole class of plaintiffs, everybody who might have been charged an unfair price by this hospital. How are you supposed to figure out a fair resolution? Chris ends up helping fight some rearguard actions because some of these hospitals, after they get the cases dismissed, they go after Scruggs and his team for legal fees, which is an unusual move in the U.S. legal system. Kind of a screw you. The hospitals wanted the attorneys to feel the sting, teach them a lesson so they wouldn't uh, audaciously come back against them on, on things like this again. We're the ones that own the city, and you should have to pay for even calling us to account. Oh, Phoebe Putney? also sued Charles Rayburg and John Bagnato for $66 million for sending those faxes. And then the local DA's office arrested our two guys. Remember how those two ex-FBI goons said they'd been working with the DA on charges that totally fell apart in court? Mm -hmm. 
And Scruggs and his team did win some victories eventually. Some hospital systems eventually settled. Those hospitals and others also agreed to actually give charity care going forward, and they spelled out who would be eligible and for how much. Some of them agreed to give money back to patients. The hospital in Chicago that went after that forklift operator raided his bank account, they agreed to pay up to $3 million in rebates. In another case with Catholic Healthcare West, that was said to be worth more than $200 million, which does sound like a lot. But remember, little Phoebe Putney Health in Albany, Georgia, was sitting on more than $200 million in cash when our two guys started poking around and clearing more than $20 million a year. For Dick Scruggs, it was no tobacco settlement. Even without paying the other side's attorney fees, Scruggs figures he lost more than $10 million financing these cases. It left him with plenty of millions left. That tobacco settlement was huge. But it gave him something to reflect on. It's the kind of reflection he hadn't maybe done so much before. Orson Welles, I think, is famously quoted, there's no confidence like ignorance. And so, uh, you know, we just didn't know any better with tobacco, and we didn't know any better in other litigations, although they weren't all as successful as tobacco. For sure. Dick Scruggs found his next crusade a little more than a year after filing those first suits. Or you could say it found him. Hurricane Katrina tore through Mississippi where he lived. It wrecked his house and lots of other houses. Insurance companies were trying to get out of paying people for the damages, and Scruggs went into battle against them. In the aftermath, he lost big. A relatively minor legal dispute with one of the lawyers he'd worked with took a weird, weird turn. Dick Scruggs ended up pleading guilty to conspiring to bribe a judge. There are people who say he was the victim of a setup. There's been a lot written about the case, including a whole book. Reading about it, I got the impression the legal world of Mississippi is just really swampy. Things happen maybe kind of routinely that may or may not be illegal, but they're definitely messy. I asked Scruggs what he thought of that impression. I have my my share of the blame to bear and, and my demise. Uh, but I had a lot of help that I didn't know I was getting, too, from forces that, uh, you know, it really kind of boiled down to being too big for my britches. You know, we thought we were invincible, at least I did, and... You know, just kept pushing the boundary until until uh, until I fell over the edge. Dick Scruggs served about six years in federal prison. While he was there, he taught other inmates to read, helped dozens of them get high school equivalency degrees. When he got out, his boats and his millions were waiting for him, but he couldn't practice law anymore. He started a nonprofit called Second Chance Mississippi that supports adult education programs. Here's how everything else shook out. Charles Rayburg sued an investigator for the Albany Prosecutor's Office for lying to a grand jury. The case eventually went to the Supreme Court. Around the time the Supreme Court ruled in that case, Phoebe Putney Health bought the other hospital in town, the one John Bagnato was doing his surgeries in after his beef with Phoebe Putney meant he couldn't practice there anymore. He moved to Macon, started a practice there. In these cases, they had an afterlife. In June 2005, when a lot of them were being dismissed, U.S. Senator Charles Grassley sent a letter to 10 hospital systems demanding a bunch of information about their charity care policies, how much cash they were sitting on, how much their CEOs got paid, whether they were really acting like nonprofits. Most of the names on that list were big ones, the Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic. But one was in a small city in Georgia, kind of an Easter egg, a tip of the hat, I think. Charles Grassley's way of showing that he was paying attention to Scruggs and to Bagnato and Rayburg. 
Phoebe Putney Health. And Grassley did not stop with that letter, not by a long shot. That's our story for next time. And as I mentioned, we will be on this fairly wild ride for a few episodes. It's all about how change actually happens. Early this year, we profiled a guy named Jared Walker who went super viral on TikTok showing people how to apply for charity care because it is now the law that nonprofit hospitals have charity care policies. And some of them make it easy, and some of them seem to act like it's still 2004 in Albany, Georgia, if you know what I mean. So that process of change, it's still going. By the time we're done with this ride, we'll be in the present day and looking to the future. And here's a way you might be able to get involved right now. Researchers at the Innovation for Justice program at the University of Arizona are looking at hospitals' debt collection practices and how laws or regulation could do a better job protecting people. And they are looking to talk to some people who have been sued over medical bills. If that's you or someone you know, here's a link to get in touch. bit.ly slash talkmeddebt is a 30-minute interview. They're not going to release your name or anything to anybody. It's all anonymous. And there might be a gift card in it for you. That's bit.ly slash talkmeddebt. I'll post a link wherever you're listening to this. Thanks. And I'll catch you in two weeks. Till then, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by me, Dan Weissman, edited by Marion Wang. Our amazing intern, Emily Pisacreta, provided additional reporting. Big thanks to Kindling Group for allowing us to use audio from their documentary, Do No Harm. You can learn more about their work at kindlinggroup.org. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Audio wizardry for this episode is from T.H. Ponders, with special thanks to Adam Raimunda. Our music is from Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America. It's an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor, this guy, Henry J. Kaiser, who had his hands in a lot of different stuff, really different. He paved roads, built a big chunk of the U.S. cargo fleet for World War II, made cars, including the Jeep, made aluminum foil. When he died more than 50 years ago, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash Kaiser. Diane Weber is national editor for broadcast, and Tanya English is senior editor for broadcast innovation at Kaiser Health News. They're editorial liaisons to this show. Thanks to Public Narrative, a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. And if you like what you're hearing and want to get more information from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter, armandalegshow.com slash newsletter. Thanks. What I'd like to know is where did you get the confidence from to make Ignorance. a film with such... Ignorance, sheer ignorance, you know, there's no confidence to equal it.